Hello, my name's David. And I'm Russell. And this is Old News. It's good to be back, as always. How are you? Uh, well, I'm going to start with a little apology. Mm-hmm. If my voice sounds a little bit strange, a little bit breathy, a little bit strained, okay. I was really rather poorly couple of months ago and it seems to have affected my voice a little bit and what seems to happen is as the day goes on my voice becomes more tired i don't know if other people can hear it but i can sense that yeah my voice just seems different yeah yeah i i can't hear it so much from my point of view but you know if you can hear it you're aware of it and then you can be hypersensitive to it can't you yeah but you're feeling a lot better now hopefully Yes, well, yeah. I can breathe, which is yeah. always a good which thing. Which is a good thing, yeah. yeah. Lack of breath is a... It's deleterious to health, isn't yes. it, on the whole? Yeah. Oh, dear. So, we got a little bit of feedback from a listener, Katie, who berated me because I called King Arthur a Wessex king, but actually, of course, he was king of the Britons. Oh, he was. Good yeah, point. of course. More of a Welsh king. Yeah, which is exactly the point. <laughs> Currently, in Welsh, the word for the English is basically the word for Saxon. Right. Yeah. Basically, he's a Welsh king or Welsh Cornish king. Uh, whereas uh, she was, she said that I was thinking of Alfred, appointed by God to rule and Good burner point. burner point. of cakes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> excellent leadership skills, poor bakery skills. <laughs> uh, none of this. I. I know very little about King Alfred, despite him being sort of quite an important figure in the history. I know the story of his hiding in a tree. Uh, hiding in the swamps. Hiding in the swamps. Somerset. Right, and he burnt the cakes. Uh, well, he was left to watch the cakes by an old woman or something. Right. And he fell asleep. And burnt the cakes. And let the cakes burn. But see, I have no idea. Why was he hiding? Who's he hiding from? You, you, <laughs> need, you need to watch The Last Kingdom or read The Last Kingdom books. I guess I do, but yeah. what are they? They're by Bernard Cornwell, I think. Essentially, he found out that one of his ancestors was a Saxon from Bambra. Okay. Bebenberg, as it was at the time. Yes. And this sparked his imagination. So he wrote stories about a guy with the same name as his. Yeah. It's all about how this guy gets involved with King Alfred. King Alfred. Yeah, history of Wessex yeah. and Northumbria and Mercia around about that time. All right. Interesting little fact. In the books, uh, they turn up at the founding of the parish church in Chesley Street. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. In 883 AD. Yeah. Because they're running away from the Vikings again. Uh, so I've been getting into some more podcasts uh, recently. I must be very Johnny-come-lately-to-the-party listening to true crime podcasts. Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Have you listened to any of that? I've, I've listened to Serial, or the the first series of Serial. Serial, uh-huh. And I've actually just, in the last week, started listening to Series 3 of Serial, and I've skipped Series 2 because I just didn't look like it was interesting at all. All right. Because I started listening to Up and Vanished, which was kind of one of the other ones that's risen to prominence on the back of serial and all of that so that's very good yeah interesting about a murder case in the south of the u.s in georgia in a small town where everybody knows each other so yeah recommended excellent and they're they're on to their second season now so i'm not quite finished the first season yet so 
I'll be getting into the second one before long. Yeah. But the other one I listened to was an Australian one called uh, Teacher's Pet. I've heard of that. Yes. yes. Is it good? Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Uh, not quite finished because the police have just started digging up the back garden where they think the victim is buried. Right. Literally just in the last few weeks. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Regular listener Barry got in touch, said he'd been enjoying the podcast, so thank you for that. But mentioned that episodes one, two and three apparently aren't showing up on iTunes, so we will address that. We'll try and figure out what's going on. Yeah. It's a bit bit strange but <laughs> we'll figure it out uh, so thanks for letting us know and if anybody else has any feedback please do get in touch you'll hear a a thing later on with all the different ways oh <laughs> what's the word a spot yeah uh, um, anyway yeah, yeah one of them commercial break <laughs> a natural break as we used to call them on BBC it wasn't breakfast was it what was it they used to have natural breaks on? Natural and breaks. diamonds. It was kind of their answer. It was the BBC's answer to this morning. Oh, it was BBC Breakfast Time, what is now BBC Breakfast. But that was the actual in the morning. This was sort of mid morning before dinner. It was Anne oh, Diamond no. and Nick, what's his face? Yes. I know what you're talking about. Good morning with Anne and Nick. Yes. Let's have a natural break, which is to say, you know, let the viewers get up and make yeah. a cup of tea and go to the loo or whatever. Yeah. Because with the BBC, we can't run the adverts. Yes. <laughs> I forgot about that. That's, yeah, that's just, that's just genuinely strange. If you would like to contact us here at Old News, there are, of course, the usual methods. You can find us on the old-fashioned interwebs at oldnews.podbean.com. You can email us on oldnewspod at gmail.com. We are available on Facebook. Just search for Old News Podcast. And we're also available on Twitter, at Old News Pod. And uh, if you can find us on YouTube, then well done. That would just never happen now, would it? it Probably not. Weird. Yeah. Though you do see it where a, a lot of the BBC productions... Oh, here we are, obsessing about the BBC again. Mm-hmm. You see BBC productions that like are jointly produced with people like the Discovery Channel, mm-hmm. and you can see the way it's edited where the advert break would be. Yes. Yeah, it's quite obvious where that is, because a sudden burst of music fades away. Mm-hmm burst of other music <laughs> which kind of makes sense without an advert but not really it's yeah. like, that's a money about the BBC should we try not to talk about them yeah. yes <laughs> old news we should get to this week's topic I mm-hmm. guess because we went to sit down to look at this because I suggested the topic and you David you said that's a good idea would mm-hmm. something would interest us and then we realized it was just we had a lot to say yeah. and a lot to read and it a lot seems to look a huge up. subject yeah yeah and so we're talking today about the bhopal disaster in india on the 2nd to the 3rd of december 1984 now one of the things i found with this topic obviously we're talking about a disaster we're talking about enormous loss of life which we'll get to so again we're going to have to sort of tread carefully and remember the this should always be about the victims. Did you find yourself getting as angry 
and as emotional as I did reading about this. Angry, yeah. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, it was upsetting. Like, just with reading about the effects and the people who were effect, uh, killed and in, maimed and injured. But it, it just incensed me, left me with this burning sense of outrage. Just, this has no reason to have happened. Yeah. It is so avoidable. And we'll get into all that. I just really couldn't get away from that. I'm going to apply the JFK test because you're a little bit older than me. I was four at the time and I really don't have any recollection of this at all. I Do you? No. I don't think this massively made our news. Do you know what? I went on to YouTube just to see, oh, let's look at some news reports and things because people have uploaded all kinds of things on youtube Mm -hmm. all of the news reports that i could find were american tv yeah nbc news abc news Mm -hmm. nothing from the british yeah now i wonder whether this is because the company that ran the plant was an american company so they had that connection connection, but i just find it really surprising the worst industrial disaster in the history of the modern era really just didn't seem to have made any impact yeah i was thinking when we were reading up about it this disaster is famous for being the disaster that isn't famous if that makes any sense right like lots of people have heard of it and they know they don't know anything about it so interesting when i was at university in 2004 which would have been the 20th anniversary i was in a lecture uh, and the lecture was given by it was a sociology lecturer and he started with because it was about industry and society and this kind of thing and he said today is the 20th anniversary of something very important does anybody know what it is and i was a mature student mature by a few years but not many i put my hand up and i said it was the bhopal disaster but i only knew that because i'd read the newspaper that morning whereas Everybody else in the room who was a bit younger were all kind of, oh, no, they hadn't heard of it. And I think it's easy to forget how quickly history is forgotten. Once you get young people who, I suppose, if I were to talk to young people now about the events of September the 11th, 2001 mm-hmm. they'd be kind of like but what was that all about yeah mm-hmm. which that's just natural that's the progress of time but it just strikes me that this does seem to be a blank yeah for so many folks how i came to know about this disaster was adverts in the newspaper in the 90s when i started to read newspapers and we always used to read the independent and it was what we used to get at home wasn't it i can remember there used to be regularly there'd be an advert in the corner of maybe page three page four page five for the the bhopal disaster appeal i remember it distinctly because it always featured the very famous photograph that comes out of this disaster which you must have seen in the course of the research. Yeah, yeah with the sort yeah. of half-buried... Mm, the child's child, face just yeah. poking out of... Because they're obviously burying bodies quickly because there's so many of them mm. in, 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 in the earth. There's no coffin or anything. And it's there's two photographs of the same thing. One is colour, one is black and white, and they're very, very famous. I did write down the photographers somewhere. Let's see. Pablo Bartholomew and Rogan Rye... So one is coloured, one is black and white, but that's an incredibly haunting image. Mm. I can remember when I first saw that staring out at me from the newspaper, and I was very young, I was probably about 11, 12, 
just flicking through the paper, seeing what the paper was all about, mm-hmm. and just going, oh, isn't that awful? And it being like wanting to cover it up while I was reading other things. Yeah. It is awful. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I've heard of Bhopal. It wasn't until a lot later where I actually looked into what it was, or the, there was a documentary on telly and I found out about it. Old news. We've done quite a lot of introduction there, so shall we move into a bit of the narrative and just tell the story of what happened that night in the city of Bhopal? Yeah, let's not get into what happened that night straight okay, away. Right, Bhopal is a town, yeah, city. medium-sized city. Yeah, in Madhya Pradesh. Madhya Pradesh. I hope yeah. I'm pronouncing that. And essentially, it was a gas leak from a chemical plant owned by Union Carbide India Limited, who are like an Indian subsidiary, subsidiary. of yeah. Union Carbide, who an American firm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, should be pointed out because this will become important later mm. on. 50.9% owned by Union Carbide, 49.1% owned by the Indian government through various means. Mm-hmm. And the death toll was, well, there's various different figures on okay. this. The official Indian government death toll was 2,259 immediate deaths okay. So on the night. Wow. 3,787 deaths in total, with 558,125 injuries. It just, everything else pales into insignificance. Like, in terms yeah. of industrial accidents... It, Mind-boggling, it, isn't it? It's just awful, isn't yeah. it? Just awful. But there are some alternative figures. Okay. Uh, one set of which says, 8,000 people died within two weeks of the event. Okay. And 8,000 have died since due to problems caused by the event. Right. right. So 16,000. 16,000 people. May may have died, depending on who you believe. And you think about the big mining accidents and explosions and that kind of thing over the years. And okay, that might run into the hundreds and they are appalling. Mm -hmm. But this is literally a whole order and more worse yeah, and we still don't know. Don't about know anything that. about it. Yeah. I don't know the emotion comes out in me. Anyway, that's the nature of the accident. So, mm. sort of, there were some various events that happened in the lead up Befo- in the beforehand. Yeah, yeah. beforehand, yeah. which I think is worth exploring. Yeah. So this this plant, this what I described as a chemical plant, was actually focused around making a pesticide with a particular chemical called methyl isocyanate MIC which we shall be shortening to MIC MIC, from here on in this chemical plant seemed to get a bit of a reputation for itself for not being very safe Mm. so in in the run-up in 1981, a worker was was splashed with phosgene, a li- liquid phosgene. Yeah. And anybody who knows something about history, phosgene was used as a poison gas in World War One. Yes. He panicked, removed his gas mask, and died yeah. shortly thereafter. Do you know how phosgene kills you? I did look it up, and yeah. I can't remember now. It destroys the lining of the lungs, yeah. and then you drown in your own blood. Mm. January 1982... 24 workers were exposed to phosgene. None had been told to wear gas masks. February 1982, MIC leak affected 18 workers. August 1982, a chemical engineer tried to stop an MIC leak and got chemical burns on 30% of his body. October 1982, another MIC leak. Uh, A supervisor was burned and two employees were exposed to the gas. 
between 83 and 84 there was a series of MIC chlorine monomethylamine phosgene and carbon tetrachloride all of which are chemicals we've all kind of heard of and know they're nasty <laughs> yeah I was just going to say that neither of us are chemists and there is a certain thing like if something has a long name you yeah. tend to go no, that's but bad but these are all bad yeah like, we, I mean <laughs> they're all bad I don't know exactly what carbon tetrachloride does or what it's like but, but I have I, heard of it um, yeah but anything with chloride at the end of it yeah. uh, like okay sodium chloride is salt but a lot of chlorine compounds like generally quite bad yeah. awful used for killing bugs yeah yeah. So, MIC, do you know, did you find out what it is, what it's made out of? Uh, I didn't really. Yeah. No. Its chemical symbol mm-hmm. is C2H3NO, so, which is... Uh, C3. C2. Sorry, C2. So, what's that? Carbon. Two carbons. Yeah, yeah. two carbons. All right, okay, go on. H3. H- uh, hydrogen. Yeah. NO. Uh, that's capital oxygen. N, capital yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's uh, the word for that, isn't it? Where you have like an NO group stuck on the end of something. Yeah, yeah. I'm always kind of a little bit amazed. I, I did one year of A-level chemistry, organic chemistry, that it's just carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen. But arranged in such a way that yeah. it's incredibly poisonous. Yeah. Four things that by themselves, basically, you're right. And totally vital to life. Yeah. Absolutely vital. Yeah. yeah. And the something that will become important later on if this stuff mixes with water Mm -hmm. it creates co2 and something called 135 trimethyl biurate and a lot of heat yes a huge amount of heat which again is important the heat will become important yeah as to what happened so the plant had three three big tanks for the mic which were supposed to store 30 tons I didn't check how actually big they were. They were 60 tons. 60 tanks. tons, but so you were only supposed to fill them up to 30 tons. Yeah, and then so the, halfway, 50%. And, yeah, and then the difference was made up with nitrogen to provide pressure. Well, to stop any reactions, because like nitrogen in, is inerting the inert, top of the tank. Yeah, and and you use the pressure the so you can pump it out. In October 84, tank E610 or E610 lost its nitrogen gas pressure. So the MIC couldn't be pumped out. At the time, tank E610 was over capacity with 42 tonnes of MIC. Right. So immediately... We've got two things wrong already. Yeah. 2nd of December, 84, in the early evening. These things always happen in the evening. They always happen on the night shift. Yeah, it's true. Because people are tired. Night workers often are more prone to errors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Somehow which we'll discuss later, water enters the system either by attempts to unclog the pipes or by someone doing it on purpose. One of the two. At 10.30pm, the pressure in the tank is normal. Reads normal on all all the gauges. By 11pm, the pressure has increased five times the normal amount, but it's disregarded as an instrument malfunction. Again, that seems to crop up in all of our disaster episodes. By 11.20pm, the workers are feeling the effects of MIC exposure. So they're starting to feel it in their lungs, maybe on their skin, that yeah, kind of thing. and so eyes, isn't it? The, yeah. Like all the, the wet membranes is the phrase, mm. isn't it? You know, the, mm. is the way these things enter. So they start looking for a leak. They obviously realise, oh, right, something's wrong. We'd better look for a leak. At 11.45, a leak is found. At 12.15 p.m., uh, 12.15 a.m., sorry, everyone goes for a tea break. 
and yeah. they say, we'll sort it out after the tea break. We will discuss cultural issues, but do you not think that smacks of the little guy going, do you know there's a leak over here? It's really awful. Yeah. And the boss kind of going, yeah, 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 later. Stop yeah. bothering me, it's tea break. Yeah. 12.40 a.m., the pressure and temperature in E610 hits a critical level. An atmospheric venting begins. 30 tonnes of gas is released in the first hour. That atmospheric venting should have been preventable because yeah. it should have been burnt off as it was coming out the chimney. Because there was a flare stack. Yeah. yeah. But, but the that had been turned off because use. it was being repaired. Yeah. The, there was a, a corroded pipe which they'd removed and was a way for repair. Yeah. At 12.50, so 10 minutes later, two alarms are activated. One inside the plant and one outside to warn the people around mm-hmm. the plant. The outside alarm is disconnected very quickly. Because I read that initially these two alarms were connected when one rang, the other one rang. Yeah. They disconnected it because, oh, we get so many nuisance alarms, we don't want to alarm the populace outside the yeah. the gates. Yeah. So they, it rings for a short while, then stops. stops. The workers evacuate upwind. At 1am, the police are finally informed that residents are evacuating. But they weren't informed by people at the plant. They were informed by uh, a sort of warden, uh, community warden type okay, person, right. who had spotted that people were leaving city between 125 and 210 a.m the police attempt to contact the plant they do actually manage to speak to someone but they're told literally everything is okay on the third attempt they're told we don't know what is happening sir that's all they're told the hospital obviously starts receiving patients Mm -hmm. they're given misinformation Probably not on purpose. Probably, probably in the chaos. In the chaos. Yeah. But they're told that it's ammonia, first of all. Then they're told it's phosgene. Eventually, they're told it's something called MIC. They're not told the proper name of the chemical. Mm. They're just told MIC. And it's thought that a lot of the medical staff in that hospital weren't fully trained. It was a, a poor quality medical facility. Yeah. I can imagine if you or I had to go to the hospital down the road, mm. the doctors and nurses in there wouldn't know what MIC was straight yeah. away. But if they were they'd told, have to look it up. Yeah, if they were told what the thing is in full, yeah. they'd be on the phone to somebody else going, what the heck is this? What's this? What yeah. do we do? Yeah. And that just smacks of a technical person just using their jargon and not thinking about, I'm speaking to non-technical people, people I'm speaking exactly. to non-engineers. Yeah. At 2am, the leak sort of peters out. At 2.15am, the public siren finally sounds for an extended period. Shortly after that, a Union Carbide employee finally walks into a police control room and tells them of the leak, but also says it's been plugged, which wasn't true. It was still open to the atmosphere. (laughs) It was still open to the atmosphere. And why on earth did he walk to the police station? Yeah. (laughs) The residents of the surrounding town were never told what was going on by anybody. Mm. The first they knew of the incident was feeling the effects or looking outside to see that there was some chaos going on. And one of the things that really struck me was 30 tonnes of gas. So it does depend which gas you've got. Mm -hmm. However, anything, 30 tonnes of something, once you've expanded it to atmospheric pressure is an enormous volume of gas. Mm. No, mass versus volume. It's just 
going to spread over an enormous distance right. and it's heavier than air yes i was just going to say that so yeah. they believe that people who were asleep which they were because it was midnight mm -hmm. got bigger doses yeah children children because they were short yeah and what an awful lot of killed an awful lot of folk was simply there was commotion they opened the doors and went outside to see what the commotion was yeah yeah. Whereas quite often in these cases, people are told, stay indoors, keep the window shut, keep the door shut. Yeah, if you've got an upper floor, go to the upper floor. Exactly. Old news. There is nothing good about this situation, is there? No. Nobody comes out of this well at all, whatsoever. And it's just the poor people of Bhopal, the medical staff at the hospital are just suddenly inundated. I just want to point the finger at you know, the workers and the engineers and the managers of the Union Carbide and go, you, it's your fault, the big pointy finger, which I'm doing next to the yeah. microphone. I think one of the things that really struck me was I read that narrative the same as you, and that was my initial response, and I still feel it very strongly. But when you start reading from other points of view and some of the... the analysis there is more to this than just incompetent engineers being incompetent one night there's a whole sort of wider picture so the first thing i wanted to talk about is just like the product itself so they were making a pesticide which is called seven s-e-v-i-n which was it invented just after kind of the withdrawal of DDT. Right. DDT was famed because it was uh, harmless to humans but killed everything else. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why it had gotten banned because they'd realised that if you destroy the entirety of the food chain that might be a bad thing. But Seven had been a big success. It, it, it was created in the, the early 60s. Uh, the Egyptian cotton crop in 1961, did he come across that? That apparently it was threatened through pests and the entire crop was at risk of being destroyed and that would have been basically the Egyptian economy on its knees for that year mm -hmm. and with it the attendant you know poverty and destitution mm -hmm. starvation and seven was the thing that saved them right. you know it was it was a, a great product for its time it was popular in India because India had problems with food shortages at the time it was that kind of period of when 20th century population growth had really gotten going in places like China and India and their population was exploding and their ability to create food hadn't caught up and we were still in the middle of that you know, the green revolution of you know increased rice yields, increased wheat yields, and so on. Starvation in India was not a uncommon thing at that point, so it was popular uh, as a pesticide. But by the time 1984 came, it was an old product, and certain amount of the insects that it was designed to kill had started to show resistance. They'd already thought about, well, we're going to phase this out in the next eight years. But despite the fact that it was an old product, the Indian government decided, no, no, we're going to create this stuff. We're going to make it in India. Yeah. And, you know, foreign investment was sought. And, you know, this is what happened. They, they ended up producing an old product that really was going to have a short lifespan by the time of the disaster yeah. one of the reasons the mic tanks were so full uh, in the plant at the time of the accident was because they couldn't sell all of the product that they were making yeah so this mic 
was that that was that is a precursor. It's like an intermediate product. Yeah, yeah, was just lying in the tanks, waiting to be used in the future. Mm. Did you see the bit about immediately after the the disaster? The one the only ways to get rid of the MRC was just to Make continue more make, stuff. Yeah. making product because it was relatively inert. Old news. Indian politics, right, so there's a large topic, (laughs) and one of the largest countries in the world. We're in an era when India's very much still in the grip of not only nationalism, but also they want to stand on their own two feet, you know, post the independence in 1948 they'd been trying to import seven but it was it, it was expensive uh, it was sold in u.s dollars and the indian economy always had a shortage of foreign cash so this was the incentive to well let's make the thing in, in country indigenous yeah. yeah at the same time right the economic system in india was a very strange one it's it's kind of unique i don't think it existed anywhere else and governed industrial and policy was to intervene in free markets all of the time without any restriction or anything. It was almost a centrally planned economy, but not, not quite. quite. Yeah. Right? So it was nearly social, uh, like, like what the socialist governments did but it was much less organized than that okay and it just meant that there was this enormous state interference like their industrial policy was insistence on local indian technology Mm -hmm. right and so they had this idea that when technology was imported from outside such as you know a chemical engineering production plant the indians would only pay licensing for five years then after that it became indian quote-unquote okay and okay. um, if you were buying a, an industrial plant, you would buy it locally. So stuff might have to be redesigned and reproduced and copied by local engineering firms rather than just buying it wholesale. The guys from Union Carbide who were running a plant exactly the same in the USA were more or less locked out of this process. So during the Indianization, quote unquote, there's a load of terrible decisions are made without consultation Mm -hmm. by people who have no experience Maybe, just maybe, when government's interfering in commercial contracts. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right? We all know where that leads. Well, We all know where it leads without any kind of supervision. Initially, the plant is still majority owned by Union Carbide, almost wholly owned. But in a fit of nationalism, in a fit, fit of we must intervene in the market and make this more Indian, this is how you end up with the government with 49.1% of the shares. Mm-hmm through various nationalised banks and investment funds and whatever. And I think that'll be a theme which we'll come to later. And so you went to this horrible series of choices. There are two ways to make seven, and they chose the more dangerous one because it was simpler and potentially cheaper as well. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but if you engage in risk, you have to acknowledge risk and then manage it. Yeah. Yeah. Mitigate, mitigate risk, the risk yeah? yeah so you might need to invest more in safety systems more in training more in layers of security do we believe that's what happened when they built this plant in the 70s no no it isn't what happened at all so government planning just blindly insisted that this was going to be the way it was done and that they would make x amount thousand tons it was five thousand tons a year of seven even if 
they couldn't sell it. And let's just sort of have a, a look at why they couldn't sell it. Because at the same time, the Indian government was subsidising locally produced cheaper alternatives. They didn't realise that. Okay. Right. So, so got, they were competing with themselves. Yeah. So you've got stuff that is basically half the price of Seven, but it's less effective. It's watered down. It's got packing product that does inert product that sort of, you know, what's the word? Dilutes it, okay? But if you're a poor farmer, you're going to go for that product. Mm -hmm. And indeed, the Indian government was subsidising the production of the less effective alternatives, and they were subsidising the farmers to buy it. Okay. So now they've subsidised both ends of the market to compete against themselves. This was designed to to make 5,000 tonnes a year. They'd only sell 1,000 tonne that year. This manages to be stupid on both levels. I, 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 <laughs> honestly, right, despite my liberal lefty, you really should probably intervene in the markets occasionally sentiments. Yeah. This is not just, like that. This is where it's bad, and so that's why we've got the storage of the stuff because we can't sell. We can't sell it, and so the Union Carbide plant is not profitable, and the majority shareholders, Union Carbide, are desperate to cut costs, cut costs, and try and turn some sort of profit on the plant. And of course, what happens? You end up with all the good quality people up and leave. They stop promoting people. They stop raising wages on an annual basis. All the usual stuff. And maintenance gets deferred and yeah. so on. Which I think <clears> is a good sort of lead into like the there's two main theories about the causes, isn't there? Having yeah. having set the wider seed a little bit there. Old news. So do you do you want to sort of go yeah. go, go in go in for to, that then? To be fair, I haven't written anything right. about this. But from memory. So the generally the the, the majority view, would you say, of what happened mm-hmm is it's Union Carbide's fault. Okay. Or at least Union Carbide India Limited's fault for doing all those things. They didn't maintain it. They you know, mm. they didn't train and, people. And the cost cutting they had by what's deferred maintenance. Deferred maintenance. Which yeah. led to this tank going wrong and losing nitrogen pressure. And in an attempt to correct the nitrogen pressure they assumed there was a pipe clogged somewhere. Mm-hmm. And by what I read, like washing of pipes was a fairly regular thing. It yeah. wasn't something that was unusual to have to flush through pipes with water. And although yeah. interestingly, they had a steam—I want to say a steam cleaner, a steam boiler—they had a steam boiler to yeah. flush pipes to flush with pipes steam. out. Yeah, but that wasn't working because no, it, wasn't. it was. Yeah, it had just been shut down to save cost. Yeah, so they were trying to flush a pipe out with water to unclog a pipe to Mm -hmm. try and get the tank back online again when somehow something went wrong and water got into the tank Mm -hmm. and started reacting with the the MIC. And Union Carbide Management or Union Carbide India Management gets the blame because they didn't insist on putting, what's the word the Americans use which I, I kept reading, it's what I would call a pipe blank most people are familiar with what a pipe looks like where you get a join from one end of pipe to another end of a pipe you've got a a flange with nuts and bolts around it in a circle right a pipe blank is just where you split the pipe and you put a a piece of plate steel or something in there to block it yeah? yeah And they're saying, well, if you're going to use water on those pipes, you would have to put a blank in somewhere to prevent water from accidentally ending up in the tank, okay? And Union Carbide said, oh, well, there was no need to do that because there was a valve was shut and, you know, the valve was good. 
I, w I work in engineering systems all the time. It's my job, right? I will tell you the number of valves you go to close and they're just rotten. Mm -hmm. It's just part of life. You think, oh, I'll try and stop the water getting into this piece of machinery. Nope. Valves knackered. Valves knackered. Steam, oil, fuel, whatever. It happens all the time. Or you do the opposite. You go to open a valve and you find that it's stuck shut. It breaks apart when you try and open it. And then you can't close it again. And especially as machinery gets old, taking these things out and putting new in is, is, is just it's bread and butter. Yeah. It's stuff you do all the time. The word deferred maintenance to me sounds like, let's not do anything and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. Old news. That was the majority view. That's the majority view, That's right? the official, yeah. officially accepted view. Now, Union Carbide take a very different yeah, view. They don't say they? The no, second no. theory. Yeah. The second theory is that a disgruntled employee removed a Connection um, a to meter. a pressure gauge. Uh, yeah. yeah, a pressure gauge attached uh, just a normal water hose in my mind i'm thinking fire hose or <laughs> even I garden think, hose yeah i think just like a, a just a normal a normal water hose yeah. you have a pressurized water supply in it mm. and a hose pipe yeah and put the water in on purpose essentially to spite their employers mm. now when you read that your initial reaction is to go well, that's just typical big business trying to blame an employee. Blame the workers. That's the easy way around it. But there was a surprising... I was surprised by the amount of evidence behind that. Yeah. And it did make me question the official story because there's things like the meter had been removed. There were witnesses there's, yeah, who there is saw the hose. There's a witness, isn't there, who yeah. saw the hose pipe. Yeah. yeah. Also, some of the things the Indian government did after the event when they came to do the investigation because that happened quite quickly mm -hmm. the you know the whole thing was shut down the indian government fell onto the the factory uh, union carbide was not allowed anywhere near it you know no one yeah. from america was allowed anywhere near this place yeah. but they didn't release any information to anyone it was very hush hush yeah and then they came out and said, this is what's happened. Yeah. And isn't there a... There's one of the witnesses says that the next morning he was told to go get a new pressure gauge yes. and connect it. Yeah. I think there'll be an awful lot of people who are campaigners on behalf of the rights of victims from Bhopal will be very upset with us for giving Union Carbide a fair hearing. Yeah. Or a sympathetic hearing, sorry. But my argument is, is like, why not both? Because even if it was a disgruntled employee doing it yeah and you know they had motive and opportunity you no know, motive was that they hadn't had their pay increase there was no and working conditions were terrible and so yeah. on yeah and had the opportunity because he was there with the hose pipe okay that might be true but even if he'd done that to spite them he was given cause to do it by the company yeah but and all of the things that should have protected against it yeah even yeah even if someone had done it on purpose still yeah. all the other things yeah. could and should have come into play these should have been fail safe yeah yeah because you know, the the vent pipe you know the the, the flare stack yeah. that was under capacity so it couldn't cope with a runaway reaction yeah, yeah. he's a did you read about that there was supposed to be, uh, for want of a better term, a sprinkler system mm -hmm. that uh, was supposed to turn on 
because the MIC is water soluble. So turn on the sprinkler system that takes some of the MIC out of the air, reduces the effect of the leak. That's where my chemistry (laughs) fell down a little bit because I was thinking, hold on, you've got water reacting with the MIC causing the problem, Mm -hmm. but then you're using water to get rid of the MIC. And my brain went, hmm? Isn't the problem that because when you dissolve certain products with water, they get hot. Mm. Uh, sulfuric acid is the famous one, the sort of the one you might see at school. And I think this is the problem that as you added water to the tank, it started to go into it, solution. It gets hot. It gets hotter it. and hotter, and then it boils. Yeah, yeah and yeah. that's when you. So get that's the gas. like it's like a yeah. heat process rather than yeah. a chemical process as such. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think the idea was that you would sort of get water and spray because the other uh, thing that i saw was that the uh, the sprinkler systems didn't have enough water pressure to reach the top of the stack yeah the, the, where and the leakage would d- be also even if they did there was they still weren't up to scratch they they didn't have enough capacity yeah not only was the the flare stack but there was a scrubber stack as well which was supposed to have carbon Carb- yeah. carbon carbonate Calcium carbonate in it, I think, which is sort of, I don't know, presumably inerts it somehow or another yeah. chemically. And that didn't work either. That was out of order. Yeah. And just talk about like the process of the the thing getting hot, right? This was supposed to be stored at four degrees Celsius. And there was a big cooling plant provided with big cooling loops in the tanks to, to keep that temperature down. Mm-hmm. So obviously with the baking heat of the kind of Indian weather, I guess, you know, the tanks were buried underground with a concrete cap over the top of them to protect them from that heat with a big cooling loop and a refrigeration system to do, do that. And the refrigeration system was decommissioned and switched off. Yes. Apparently the temperature was going up and down between, was it something like 10 and 40 degrees? Yeah, and it's meant to be kept at four. Four. <laughs> How many things have gone wrong in this disaster? Yeah, this is this is worse than uh, uh, the Chernobyl chain of events. It is worse. It is worse. It it's is. just appalling. So we've talked a bit on kind of the engineering issues, and I had a couple of other notes which I wanted to because engineering's my my thing, right? So okay. I'll just bang on about it for a little while. I'll have a snooze and see if anybody is interested. Like on the on the pressure gauge, you know, you know how they thought it was an erroneous reading. Pressure gauges are delicate. They're really important, but they're always the first thing to fail. Right. And they are the disposable item. You know, after a little while, you start going, I don't believe a word that pressure gauge has to say. Off with it. Put a new one on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's just something you should be doing all the time. And the problem is with pressure gauges is... You get used to the continuous process. The pressure should always be the same. So you start to ignore it. You don't look at it. Or when it goes wrong, it quite often goes, what we call at work, it goes around the clock and it just reads maximum and you go, it's knackered. Or it reads zero. Or the little needle on the pressure gauge falls off. (laughs) (laughs) Especially, well... My environment, you get a lot of vibration. That does tend to be what what happens. And for like things that are you assume to be the same all the time, it's very easy to ignore them. I always remember having a, a very philosophical debate with a trainee one time because for whatever reason, on this particular bit of equipment, there was two pressure gauges mounted to the same point, reading the same thing. Right? <laughs> and one read two bar, and the other one read two and a half. Yeah. And I said to the, the trainee, what, what's the pressure here? 
and he looked at it. So, well, it's two and a quarter. I said, you have no justification for saying <laughs> that whatsoever. He just, right? he just went, well, it's, it's somewhere in between. On the average, right? I said, you, know, you can't say that. I said, one is probably right and one is probably wrong. But we have no idea which. Okay. There was a little valve and I turned the valve and the valve on pressure gauges, when you turn them, they vent the pressure out. So one of them read zero. And now it just, now it just had one gauge that said two bar and I said what's the pressure in here he said it's two bar I said you still don't know pressure gauges are just an indication you don't actually know what's happening on the inside there might be 50 bar in there and the thing's ready to explode there might be nothing at all it might just be a knackered pressure gauge when something's continuous and the pointer is staying steady all the time you take it on trust that it's reading correctly and I just thought that that kind of thinking is something that I deal with all the time in my professional life. And it just struck me, the fact that they looked at a gauge and went, oh, it's fine, not a nuisance, oh, it's high again, oh, it must just be a warm tank, you know, weather's been a bit hot the last couple of days, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Have a cup of tea. Yeah, let's literally. go on tea break. Let's literally go on tea break, yeah. Old news. When you install safety systems, they have to work. And one of the reasons why you install multiple safety systems is so you, you can afford to lose one of them. Mm. Almost every safety system here has gone. In fact, they yeah. have. They've all yeah, gone. There's just no safety systems at all. Yeah. And your last line of defense is humans going, there's something wrong. Yeah. And there's one guy going to the tea room saying, I think there's a leak. Your warning that there's something wrong is your employees going, <coughs> oh, I can feel a bit of a tickle in my throat. Or my eyes have turned red and are watering. That's not an early warning system. You can contact Old News on our website, www.oldnews.podbean.com. You can email us at oldnewspod at gmail.com. You can search for Old News Podcast on Facebook. You can tweet us at Old News Pod. And you can search for us on YouTube. So I wanted to talk about the victims next a little bit because I think we've we've concentrated quite a lot on the the plant itself and mm-hmm. you know Union Carbide as a company. We just we mentioned before about civil contingency planning and what happened on the night and there was nil civil contingency planning no. at all. Yeah, and the people were just left to defend for themselves. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. The workers evacuated upwind. Yeah, because they knew what the hell was going on. They must have had a plan. Yeah, yeah. that must be something they knew. They either had a plan or they went, which way is the wind going? Yeah, they right. knew, they knew instinctively what to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, did you want to talk a little bit about how this town city came to be came to around be, this plant? Yeah. Because originally this plant was kind of in the middle of nowhere, really. Kind of out of town. As you would with a, a chemical a plant. Chemical plant. Right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the city of Bhopal was a growing place, right? Yeah. So there was a big population growth, and people moved in, and you ended up with uh, what's the word unregulated shanty town on the outskirts, surrounding yeah, surrounding the chemical surrounding plant, surrounding the plant, right? And they should really shouldn't have been there. They 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 had no real rights to be there, to be honest. Originally, but originally, yeah. of course, what happened was was the local politicians. The there's some process in Indian law that I don't 
fully understand. Basically, you can give people land rights to you know, to say that. I believe it was like yeah. zoning or yeah, we've now got this many people living here. Yeah, okay, we'll just give them that land. Yeah, we'll give them. Yeah, and so they were given them because once though that became like incorporated part of the city as such, those people can vote. Yeah, and the local politicians said, "Oh well, you know, you vote for us, and we'll give you, you know an electricity supply to your new neighbourhood. Mm-hmm. We'll give you water supply. Without anybody thinking, is it really sensible to have this many people living within shouting distance of a chemical plant? Yeah. Well, there wasn't there questions asked in the uh, in the Indian Parliament about whether this well, should happen? It was lo- local opposition. Uh, right, yeah, uh, yes, yeah. it was okay, in the, yeah, the, um, lo- the local opposition. Uh, the in the Madhya Pradesh. Yeah, Madhya Pradesh, yeah. And they said, well, perhaps this is a bad, a bad idea. And they were just dismissed. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, it's all fine. It's all, it's all, it's all fine. okay. It's all it's fine. fine. Because they're voting for me. Screw you. You're just the opposition. Yeah. Everything that is bad about industry and politics and capitalism altogether in one thing. Old news. Kind of on the safety point, one of the things that protects you on safety as well is management. And one of the things that is a regular thing is people come round and, whoops, sorry. One of the things that's a regular thing is people come round and they do auditing. Yes. And, you know, they, they say, right, you've got these safety systems, but we can see faults with X, Y, and Z. These are major issues. These are minor issues. We need you to solve them within whatever. And Union Carbide, in fairness, did a audit in May 1982. Mm-hmm. So two years before the disaster, they found 61 hazards of which 30 were major hazards mm-hmm. and 11 were minor hazards but there was no action plan no follow-up no deadline you have x amount of time to solve these issues yeah, yeah. and you did you notice that in union carbide's european and american plants they did annual audits in union carbide india they did two yearly audits the, there was a phrase which I came across that I've read it before. It's called environmental racism. And it's this idea that things that are environmentally problematic, you shove them away into countries you don't care about. Yeah. I think this is what drives this. You know, the Indian culture perhaps isn't at that point. Perhaps is safety conscious. Perhaps they need to develop those kinds of systems. Union Carbide is kind of the private owners from the states goes, oh, well, just let the Indians do what the Indians do. Mm-hmm. That's their risk. Without thinking, well, what's good for our workers, what's good for our business, what's good for our regulatory environment in the states should be good for everybody else. Yeah, And uh, I think that speaks volumes about the attitude of management of certain companies in Union Carbide yeah. in this case. Well, I, th- I think there's something there to say that these companies do what the law tells them to do. They don't do stuff because it's good for their employees. Yeah, It's good for the environment. They do it because the government tells them to do it. And if the government doesn't tell them to do it, okay, they mustn't care. Well, that's true. One of the other things is all the manuals for the equipment were still in English. Yes, nothing had been translated. Yeah, and you had the higher ups, probably the people who were well educated were the people who had the better command of English. Mm -hmm. They've gone from the workforce, so they don't understand. on, on the training issue, you know, the, the incident in 82 with the guy... The gas mask. The gas yeah. mask. Okay, who knows? I mean, we all panic, don't we, when we're in highly stressed situations. But somebody 
getting into a panic and taking off their gas mask to me just knowing certain things about when you're fighting fires and that kind of thing that i've deal with at work the that smacks of a lack of, lack of training that's what people do when they don't understand the problem if that sounds like i'm bashing the workers i don't blame the workers yeah because they should have been trained yeah, well enough that's a union to carbide know what they were dealing with and know what the safety routines would be if you get splashed with this stuff, yeah. you do not take your gas mask off. And if you get splashed with the stuff, have confidence in your gas mask. Your gas yes. mask will protect you. Yeah, That's how you change the mindset yeah. of somebody who is and trained. Yeah. Old news. I wanted to talk a little bit about the role of culture here because in a former life, I used to work with a lot of Indian members of staff, the largest sort of ethnic group in the workplace. I must admit, it can be quite hard to read these things and get away from my prejudices. And I'd like to think that I'm not prejudiced, but of course... Everyone's prejudiced in some way. prejudiced. And, you know, when you've had bad experiences and you kind of think, mm, you know... Yeah. You can see the patterns happening over and over again. And certainly my experience is that Indian culture is extremely hierarchical. And so the guy going into the tea room saying there's a leak and, you know, my eyes are watering or whatever. And, oh, you know, we'll deal with it afterwards. That is exactly the kind of thing I would expect. I find that totally unsurprising. Mm -hmm. And as much as that might happen in any culture, I guess, because, you know, I'm the big boss and you're the little worker, Mm -hmm. the fact that that's happening in an Indian environment would just be very unsurprising. The other thing is, and we should tread carefully here, but I I want to talk about caste because much as caste was abolished by the Gandhi government originally, you know, one of the first things that they did, caste is now abolished. Of course it still exists. Of course it does. Of course it does. And in any industrial environment like that, caste will play out. And so you've probably got people living in the slums, in the shanty towns outside, where we can imagine the attitudes towards them, which caste are they from? They're from the bottom, aren't they? The lower levels. And then you've probably got your workers who, you know, some of which would be unskilled and then skilled. And then you've got people who are middle management and you know, your shift supervisors, people who've been educated and whatever. This will all be stratified by caste. And so you get this terrible thing with, with taking responsibility. And I, again, I'm speaking from experience. And so you can anecdote just equal data. But certainly if the lower caste people say that there's a problem and they start to clamour going, oh, you, 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 listen to us, listen to us, there's a problem. The fact that there's a problem might be embarrassing upon the person at the top. Mm-hmm. Okay, And so to avoid the embarrassment, the guy at the top just goes, you don't talk to me like that you lower caste person. How dare you? And thereby responsibility is absolved because then it's not my problem, it's somebody else's problem. Oh, stop bothering me with this. Right. I've seen that attitude in action. Mm -hmm. I mean, should I tell the toilet story? (laughs) Have I I told the toilet story before? Tell it. We'll see (laughs) if it stays in. We'll see if it goes (laughs) in at the end. (laughs) 
Okay, so I was working on one ship with a lot of Indian crew, and in the accommodation area of the ship, uh, there were communal toilets. So I think there was four cubicles. Uh, one of the toilets had become bunged up, and it wasn't working yet anymore. It needed to be repaired. And the only reason why we, as an engineering department, discovered it was bunged up, right? Because we rely on people saying toilets knackered, right? We yeah. <laughs> we don't go inspecting them, right? Was that this toilet had over flowed to the point where there was a pile of excrement on the top like the bowl was full oh okay and there was like stuff rolling onto the deck and we couldn't we couldn't first fathom why people would continue using a toilet like that Mm -hmm. right until somebody pointed out to us out of the four toilets the one at the end was the upper cast toilet okay and the upper cast people would not bring themselves to sit on a toilet that a lower caste person would sit on. Right. So they would rather squat and hover over a toilet that was full than lower themselves to use a functioning toilet. Wow. And they wouldn't tell us because, frankly, dealing with toilets is a lower caste person's job. Okay. And and what was interesting was the people who were kind of like, they were supervisors in, in the Indian crew, they saw people like us who were the officers, mm-hmm. the white men, the fact that we would lower ourselves to go unblock a toilet or whatever, they really couldn't understand that because we were, we were high-status staff mm-hmm. doing low-status work. We would argue, well, that's just skilled technical work, and mm-hmm. I've been to college to learn how to unblock toilets, right, amongst many, <laughs> other, amongst many other skills. I've been to college to use a plunger. <laughs> exactly, right? Thinking, well, it's a vacuum toilet, like, a little uh-huh. bit more sophisticated. But, yeah. Exactly. And they, they really, for them, they couldn't compute that. And as far as they were concerned, not reporting a toilet that was absolutely rolling in, 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 in excrement didn't matter to them. Mm-hmm. This is this is my personal prejudice. You yeah. can, I hope people appreciate this where I'm coming from. Yeah. But I Russell s- is aware that what he is saying could be seen as prejudicial yeah and racist but it is a thing that a actually thing. happened it is a thing so that he happened. is reporting a fact yeah now I, I know at the moment the world has a problem with what is fact and what is opinion but sometimes this is the, a fact and sometimes the facts color people's opinions you yeah. know uh, they do and I, I just i can just see how a disaster like this happens in that environment this is one of the cultural elements i think that in the lead up to this disaster and what happens on the night you can see the fingerprint yeah the fingerprints of the caste system you really can on it yeah as usual would like to thank Peter Kitson Haley, Stephen and Eddie N for the use of their voices and bensound.com for the use of the royalty free music Parallels. So having having moaned about Indian culture and things, so I, I usually do a little Russell's parallels with section, but I've got parallels with and contrast with. So interestingly, you mentioned Chernobyl yeah. before. Yeah, that was my first thing, and I think because you've got this state planning element of it, mm-hmm. state intervention into a market. 
saying you must do a certain thing, producing 5,000 tonnes of seven Mm -hmm. arbitrarily when there's no market for us. (laughs) And similarly, you know, the troubles, all that kind of state pressure to get it back on for, you know, the... Was it the anniversary of the something or other? Anyway, yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, there's a madness. Second one, which I thought was a little bit similar, was the Pepcon disaster of 1988, which people might be familiar with if they go look look it up. It's in the states. It killed a handful of people, not a huge amount. It was where they were producing rocket fuel for. Oh, okay. Uh, the US Air Force and NASA. Right, and I think I have heard of this now. And there yeah. was just an enormous fire, and then an explosion. explosion yeah. And there's a very famous piece of video footage which you can just look up on the internet, and it it was basically the same as a small yeah small device device going device. off. Yeah, 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 it was just enormous. And one of the things there was inappropriate overground storage of just they, yeah. yeah something that was dangerous, and they just had loads of it in in plastic barrels, I believe. Right, they have like two hundred tons of it or whatever that it just built up and built up and built up and nobody was thinking what about the risks Mm -hmm. what are we doing here yeah and so i I think there was that that was a a similar thing sort of in a similar era only a couple of years after the other one i wanted to draw parallel with i thought was the abavan disaster which people may not be so familiar with the, the, the coal slip. Yeah, the coal mining accident in 1966. So this was in Wales in the UK. And to very quickly tell the tale, it was in, in the Welsh Valleys. There was a coal mine and they they were piling up the, the spoil into big heaps, which you naturally do with any coal mining operation. Mm. And they kept doing it and kept doing it. And they were getting kind of closer and closer to the town. There was like people on the edges saying like, well, really, we don't think you should be putting the spoil there. And what happened? Well, was, there, was there like a, a large amount of rain? I think, yes. Are they over, I think over a period, rain. yeah. Anyway, the spoil heat slipped down the hill and it ploughed into the town and straight into a, a school, a primary school of children, elementary yeah. school. Uh, 116 children and 28 adults were killed that day. Right, it was appalling. But I, I, I thought the parallel was that this was a classic case of a state corporation. No way, because it was, it was the National Coal Board at the time. Yeah. Okay. And... The National Coal Board always prided itself in being, you know, we're for the workers. We mm-hmm. are, the, you know, the, the coal production company owned by the workers, owned by the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how they were set up. Similarly, you've got the state ownership of Union Carbide in India. And when people said, well, really, you know, you shouldn't be putting a spoil heap there, instead of the state corporation thinking we should listen to the concerns of our citizens, mm-hmm. our workers. They said, you know, if you keep going on like that, we'll stop putting the spoil heaps anywhere and you'll all be out of jobs. That's what that is. Is that what, actually what they that said? That is, yeah, not word for word. But right. yeah, in, in the lead up to that disaster, that was a thing in the community of Abavan. And then they killed 116 children and 28 adults. And, you know, this idea that state corporations for the workers are somehow better in their behaviour than private companies. Pri- private industry. It's not. Because no. they're, they're subject to all the same political pressures and same prejudices, yeah, the same class system, the class in system, yeah. yeah, yeah. And if you look at the divisions between workers and management, the unions 
uh, as a strong voice of the time versus the the political controllers of the state corporations. Yeah, very very similar. The contrast here is after the Aberfan disaster, there was a judicial inquiry, and we have things like strong judicial independence. I mean, that's kind of the, one of the great strengths of us as a country, and they squarely and firmly put the blame on the National Cool Board. Heads rolled, and the National Cool Board was told you killed these people. So there's a whole other thing whereby money that was raised for disaster relief was used by the coal board to help pay for the clearer. And that scandal went on for 50 years before the government finally put it right. But that, that's a whole other issue, issue. But I think, interestingly, that idea of an independent judiciary neatly leads into like kind of the aftermath of this disaster mm-hmm. because then you've got the Indian government passes a law which I did write the name down, but it's basically the Bhopal Disaster Act, mm-hmm. which says that the Indian government will be the sole representative of the victims of the disaster, but don't they own half the corporation? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking when I read that, yeah. And so this dispute between the two versions of events, between whether it was a disgruntled employee or whether it was kind of economic cutbacks and lack of care and attention the indian government are greatly incentivized to reduce their own embarrassment and reduce their own financial exposure and go oh, well it's all union carbide's fault yeah despite all the wrongdoings of union carbide themselves they are the people who took on the entire blame union carbide in the u.s yeah took on the entire blame and did they pay 403 million i didn't write the number down but but it's best part of half a billion dollars they were initially sued for i think it was three billion dollars they yes and they they came came to to an out-of-court settlement yeah that was significantly lower than the original claim so that's a lot of money whether it's enough money is obviously a big thing it seems to me reading about it an awful lot of that money came to india and largely evaporated Mm mm-hmm now, did you read the thing about the hospitals? You no, know, Union Carbide were instructed to fund a hospital. A hospital, yeah. yes. Yeah. And it only lasted a number of years. Did it? And, right. Yeah. And then there was the health centres that disappeared and building of houses. They were going to build good quality houses for you know, the widows and right. the victims. Yeah. And so they built houses. And then after 10 years, those houses neither had electricity, running water, or a bus service. Right. You know, transit of any type. So whether that money was well spent, that's for the Indian government to answer. But I would say a lot of it just disappeared. The actual sums of money that were paid to victims, which was about $4,000, I think, per head, mm-hmm. per victim. Doesn't sound like a lot of money, but then you wonder how much is that? Yeah, how much is that worth in India? Yeah, and you've got this terrible thing that people who work out these calculations do have to figure out. How much, how much is, is a life worth? Yeah. yeah, how much is a human life worth? Old news. I know I've banged on a lot from like the engineer's point of view here, but I hope I've given like a fair shout to yeah. you know, people that aren't engineers from the outside. Anything you want to add? Or? I don't think so. I, yeah. I hope the people of India think we've been fair. Yeah. Going from the beginning of this story, where I was so angry at Union Carbide, mm-hmm. I'm now like equally angry with the Indian government in yeah. this. It should be pointed out that Union Carbide no longer exist. Yeah, and they were bought out by... Everready, initially. Ah, who... In Swift. India, yeah, who were then bought by another company that Dow, I can't remember. Yeah, I yes, think Dow. All it, the liabilities, currently, yeah, yeah, 
belongs yeah. to Dow. Yeah. Although the the factory involved no longer exists. Yeah, that's there's just well, a very big patch of land and well, rotting. Yeah, I mean uh, the equipment there yeah. is still there. And it's all so very toxic. One of the things that'll happen is somebody will get onto our case and say, "Well, the Indian government has a space program. Yes, surely they can afford we're, to clean." We're up. going to get it from both sides here. We're going to get some very vocal Indian um, government supporters. Yeah, the nationalists. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we're also going to get the racists. Hey, equally unpopular. That usually means. So we've be got fair. ourselves banned in India. <laughs> hey. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of all I had yeah. to say on the issue. Okay. I'm glad I've got it off my chest because it was really annoying me. But <laughs> yeah. But if you feel strong, well, I feel strongly about it, having read about it. I hope that our listeners will come away from this feeling strongly, yeah. like in one way or the other. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Say hello. 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 My name is David. Oh, sorry. Ah. I spoke on top of you. Right. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You say hello. My name is David. <laughs>